Hey everyone, so glad to be with you today. We are in the midst of a teaching series in which we're focusing on a sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. This sermon is often called the Sermon on the Mount because of where Jesus gave the sermon. But if we wanted to name this sermon based on content alone, we would probably call it something like the Kingdom of God 101. I mean, in this amazing sermon, Jesus describes in vivid detail what it looks like to live our lives according to his kingdom, according to his values, rather than the world's values. And so in this um, so in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus brings up a very important and yet uh, kind of controversial topic, honestly, not only in that culture, but also in our culture. And that topic is the Bible. How does the Bible fit into the kingdom that Jesus is describing? What is the relationship between the kingdom of God and the Bible? Now, this is a very relevant question today because a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, are struggling with the Bible and understandably so. I mean, what do we do with this book that in certain places seems to condone violence or demean women or at times seems to ignore the issue of slavery? I mean, the, the temptation right now for many people is to disengage from the Bible completely or to dismiss large sections of the Bible as being an irrelevant, archaic relic from the past. We just need to focus on Jesus in fact, maybe you've had this thought or you've heard someone kind of articulate this. I'm cool with Jesus, but the Bible kind of turns me off. So, so again, this question is huge. What do we do with the Bible? Does the Bible really matter? Well, in verse 17, beginning in verse 17 of Matthew 5, Jesus addresses this very question. All right, so here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing that's very clear in the passage that I just read is that Jesus highly valued the Bible. I mean, he really, really, really valued the Bible, which creates a challenge for anyone who says, hey, I'm cool with Jesus, but not the Bible. The problem is Jesus was cool with the Bible. So if we're serious about following Jesus, we need to look carefully at why Jesus was cool with the Bible. How did Jesus view the Bible? Well, this passage shows us, and what we discover is that when we view the Bible the way Jesus does, it opens a huge door for us to experience him more deeply. It, it sets us free from being embarrassed about the Bible or distancing ourselves from it. it, it this is a total game changer. Okay, so, so when that, wherever you're at with regard to the Bible, I want to encourage all of us here, wherever you're at with regard to the Bible, I want to encourage all of us here just to set aside all of our presuppositions about the Bible, and let's just start with Jesus. Let's look at how Jesus approached the Bible. So in this passage, Jesus reveals three crucial aspects of this. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus approached the Bible as a unified story. 
which is kind of amazing when you think about it because the Bible is not really a book. It is a library of books collected over several centuries, written by different authors, different human authors in different cultural contexts. So one would not expect a collection of books like that to have a single unified theme. But that is exactly what Jesus claims. Look, look with me again at verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See that this phrase, law, the law and the prophets, that's how a Jewish person would refer to their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. The law referred to the first five books of the Old Testament, the, uh, uh, the Torah, the first five books, and then the prophets referred to the rest of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying that he's not interested in abolishing the Old Testament scriptures or distancing himself from them or offering some new teaching that doesn't rely on the Old Testament at all. No, he's saying that he has come to fulfill them. This word fulfill means to complete, to accomplish, to consummate. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the point. He is the one to whom all of the Bible points. This unified story is about him. So this is why in Luke 24, just after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he has a conversation with two followers who are confused about the resurrection and all this stuff. Here's what he said. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is going through the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and he is showing them how it all points to him. See, Jesus is giving us an incredibly significant clue as to how we are to approach the Bible. Whenever, wherever we are reading in the Bible, we, we are to view that passage through the lens of Jesus. We are to view it as part of a larger story of which Jesus is the central figure. Jesus is the point. So in the book of Hebrews, in chapter one, we read that Jesus is the exact representation of what God is like. Okay, so that then becomes a lens through which we are to view the entire Old Testament. Now, in some passages, this connection to Jesus is easier to see. Many of the elements in the story of Abraham point to Jesus. The story of the Exodus and the Passover, they point to Jesus. Certain prophecies point to Jesus. Even some Old Testament stories where we see people experiencing massive moral failures, like in the book of Judges, those stories point to Jesus. They show us how on our own, we are a hot mess without Jesus, our Savior. So many uh, passages in the Old Testament point to Jesus, our need for, for his forgiveness and grace, his help in our distress. Okay, so, so a lot of the Old Testament points, it's easy to see how it points to Jesus, but there are also passages in the Old Testament that don't seem to point to Jesus at all. Quite the opposite. I mean, there, there are some commands in the Old Testament that seem to actually contradict who Jesus is revealed to us to be in the New Testament. Passages that seem to condone violence or that devalue women. We, we know from Jesus' life and teaching that Jesus valued women. 
We know that Jesus spoke against murder and violence. So what are we supposed to do with these passages that seem to contradict who we know Jesus to be? Well, I think Matthew 5.17 gives us a really helpful clue. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, then that means that some of these Old Testament passages, these Old Testament commands, were a work in progress. They weren't fulfilled yet. They didn't fully reflect God's heart. Instead, God was accommodating himself to a particular culture for a season in order to accomplish a much larger purpose. For instance, in the Old Testament, uh, we see guys like Jacob and King David having multiple wives. And then later in the Bible, King David is described as being a man after God's heart. I mean, how do we justify that? We don't. <laughs> we don't try to justify it. We, we, what we do is acknowledge that, it, that at that time, in that cultural context, God chose not to make a big deal out of something that today in our cultural context would be a big deal. But God chose not to make a big deal about it. But that doesn't mean that God didn't care about it. It simply means that his plan with his people is a work in progress. And that in Christ, we see the full revelation of God's heart. Marriage being a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman, not a polygamous relationship. Now, this applies as well to passages where God seems to condone violence. In our Western world, 3,000 years later, you know, we can't imagine a loving God encouraging violence. But rather than automatically rejecting God or rejecting the Bible because of these disturbing Old Testament passages, what if we looked at these passages through the lens of Jesus, who is the ultimate expression of God's heart? And we realize that in these violent passages, God was accommodating himself to a very violent culture in order to advance a much greater purpose, which will ultimately be, be fulfilled in Christ. Now, those of us who are parents instinctively understand how this works. I mean, when my kids were, were like three years old and they're riding around on the tricycle on our driveway, I wasn't concerned that they didn't know the traffic rules for driving. I wasn't concerned if in our driveway they swerved over to the other side. That didn't mean I didn't think that staying in your lane is important. I just understood that in their context, that was not the most important rule to bring up at that time. It would be very important to bring up later before they started driving, which I did. I brought that up before they started driving. See, God was working with his people over, this, over centuries before Jesus came along. And they lived in a very violent, male-dominated culture. So with, with, with a long-term view in mind, God had to decide which principles he was going to focus on at that time. And that meant ignoring other principles for a season, not because he didn't care about those things, but because he was, he was working towards a larger purpose, which was ultimately realized in Jesus. Okay, so why does the Bible matter? It matters because it points us to Jesus, who is the ultimate revelation of God's heart. The, the more we read the Bible through the lens of this larger story, the closer we will get to Jesus. Some of you may remember those Where's Waldo books, you know, this is like 30 years ago. You, you would look at a page 
and try to find the character Waldo. I mean, that's sort of how Jesus encourages us to approach the Bible, but with a more significant purpose. Wherever we are reading in the Bible, let's look for how it points us to Jesus. Either it reminds us of our need for him, or if it doesn't seem to reflect the character of Jesus, we can remember that it is a story in process and that Jesus will ultimately fulfill the incomplete picture these Old Testament passages display. All right, well, in addition to approaching the Bible as a unified story, Jesus secondly approached the Bible as being trustworthy. From Jesus' perspective, the Bible is worthy of our trust. It is a reliable, trustworthy document. Look with me at the next verse in this passage. Jesus says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is saying that every letter, every little dot on every page is trustworthy. Not one aspect of the scriptures will pass away until everything is accomplished. I mean, this is fascinating. Jesus had an incredibly high view of the reliability of the Bible, which again raises all sorts of issues for people regarding the Bible today. How can we call the Bible trustworthy when it has lots of difficult passages in it? I mean, I've wrestled with this question. It's okay to honestly wrestle with this question as believers in Jesus. It's okay to wrestle. Now, in my wrestling, one thing that I've found helpful is to distinguish between what a passage says and what it means. Those are two different things. When, when people say they have a problem with the Bible, a lot of times what they actually have a problem with is not what the Bible says, but how the, that Bible passage is being interpreted. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, Jesus often had strong disagreements with how the religious leaders interpreted the Bible. In the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, five different times Jesus will say, you have heard that it was said, and then he quotes a religious leader's teaching, but I say to you, see, what's he doing? He is correcting the religious leader's interpretation of the Bible. This is one of the main challenges with, that we have with how we approach the Bible. As I mentioned before, it is a library of books written over a few centuries in different cultures and different genres. But often people don't approach the Bible with that in mind. It reminds me of that, that old bumper sticker, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. I mean, that, that sounds great, but it's not quite that simple. As someone has accurately suggested, that bumper sticker should actually read, the Bible says it, I interpret it, which doesn't fly as well on a bumper sticker. The Bible needs to be interpreted correctly, or it can become a weapon for all sorts of things. I mean, in the early 1800s, many churches in the South used certain verses in the Bible to justify slavery. That doesn't mean that the Bible justifies slavery. It just means that people can easily twist their interpretation of the Bible so that it supports their view. So how do we avoid twisting the Bible for our own purposes? Now, this is a huge subject we can spend hours on, but one of the essential aspects 
of accurately interpreting Scripture is to first of all understand the historical context in which it was originally written and what the author originally intended to say to the people in that context. So once we, if, once we understand that, we then can try to apply it to today. When, when someone says, well, I take the Bible literally, you know, that, that's not completely accurate. Like when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, you don't take that literally. You instinctively realize he was speaking hyperbole to make a point. When Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss, or that that women should wear head coverings in church, or that women should not wear gold or pearls, we, we don't take that literally in terms of our interpretation. We instinctively look at the cultural context in which it was written, and then we decide how that applies to us today. For instance, a holy kiss in that culture becomes a hearty handshake in our culture, pre-COVID at least. But Jesus unapologetically upheld the trustworthiness of Scripture while also recognizing that often it is misinterpreted, which has huge implications for us. When we're wrestling with or we're troubled by something in the Bible, let's first of all do our best to understand the historical context of the passage and how that fits into the overall story of Scripture, including how it points us to Jesus. And the other thing to realize is that on on certain non-essential issues, it is totally okay to disagree with other believers in Christ on our interpretation. In our church, we embrace these gray areas. We're not embarrassed by them. We embrace them. We realize that sincere, godly people disagree on aspects of the end times, you know, or on whether or not a woman should serve as a pastor or on the elder board. To say that the Bible is trustworthy doesn't mean that we all have to agree on everything it says. There is room for godly disagreement on non-essential matters. However, on essential matters like the deity of Christ and the work, his work on the cross and, and salvation by faith alone, those are non-negotiables. Those are not up for interpretation. They are non-negotiables for us in, 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 our, in our church. They're non-negotiables. Okay, so what, well, that leads to a third way that Jesus approached the Bible. He not only viewed it as a unified story and as being trustworthy, he also viewed it as authoritative. Authoritative. Jesus understood that the Bible has authority in our lives. Look at what he says in the next verse. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's a really strong statement. Jesus says that anyone who dismisses or ignores the commands of Scripture and teaches other people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So many of the commands in Scripture are not up for interpretation. The meaning is clear. We are told to love our enemies. 
We are told to be generous with our finances. We are told to avoid even a hint of sexual immorality. The meaning of these commands is clear. The question is, what will we do with that? What will we do with that? See, if we're honest, our natural tendency is to look for loopholes. We're all, you know, we, we just natural tendency, we look for loopholes. Surely Jesus didn't mean loving that person who slandered me. Surely a little look at porn doesn't fit into the category of sexual immorality. Everyone does it. Surely Jesus doesn't want me to increase my level of generosity. That, that's for someone else who has a lot more than I do. See, we, we, we subconsciously put ourselves in a position of choosing not, we choose not to obey certain commands in the Bible. This is an authority issue. Are we allowing the Bible to have authority over our lives? As one author stated, are we reading the Bible or is the Bible reading us? If we don't ever give the Bible the right to contradict or challenge or correct the way we're living, then in essence, we're not viewing the Bible the way Jesus did. We're not viewing the Bible as authoritative. We are choosing to be the authority. We're choosing to stand in authority over the Bible, which is a problem for those of us who claim to be Christ followers. I read somewhere that Thomas Jefferson took out scissors and literally cut out any parts of his Bible that he didn't agree with. So he had this very reduced in size Bible. Now, now we can laugh, you know, at that approach, but I will say, at least he was honest. At least he was honest, maybe more honest than we are. When we read certain biblical commands again and again, and we, and yet we continue to choose to not obey them. We choose not to give an increasing percentage of our income to the Lord. We, we choose not to have compassion on our spouse. We choose not to forgive someone who hurt us, or we choose not to guard our sexual purity. I mean, aren't we basically doing exactly what Thomas Jefferson did, cutting out the parts of the Bible we don't want to follow? Again, this isn't about interpretation. It's about the posture of our heart when we approach the Bible. Are we willing to do what the Bible commands us to do? Jesus himself in this passage says that in his kingdom, the Bible is our authority. He says here, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Are we practicing what the Bible commands? Now, please hear me. This is not about guilt or condemnation. This is not this heavy-handed, burdensome way of living here, 8,000 rules you're supposed to live by. No, no, you know, all these rules and regulations in the Bible. No, 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 not at all. That's not it. This is, this is not that. This is an invitation. This is an invitation into joy and life and freedom and peace. You see, the commands of Scripture are for our good. In fact, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the end of this, these three chapters, right at the end of this whole Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus has given all these commands about what it looks like to live as people of his kingdom, right at the end, he then describes 
the impact that this way of living can have on someone who actually does what Jesus says. Check this out. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew again and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. See, that's what's at stake when we're talking about the Bible being authoritative. It's the quality of life that we're going to experience. Having a solid foundation upon which to weather the storms of life or pursuing a life that is built on sand. I remember a guy in our church years ago who had an affair and it came out and we confronted him about it. And he decided that this other relationship on the side was so exciting and worth divorcing his wife over. So he did. He chose his own desires over the well-being of his wife and his children. I saw him like just a few years later. He looked like he had aged 15 years. There, there was a sadness about him. There was just a sadness on his face. He told me how unsatisfying his current marriage was. He told me about all the damage that his decision had caused his relationship with his kids. I mean, he had this, I wish I had listened look on his face. Again, to say that the Bible is our authority is not an invitation to burdensome rules and missing out on all the fun. No, it is actually an invitation into real life. I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in the next verse. Look with me at verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, initially, that sounds like Jesus is raising the bar to this impossible standard. I mean, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the guys that everyone looked up to as being models of righteousness. How could we possibly exceed their righteousness? Actually, it's pretty easy. (laughs) Because remember how the Pharisees were pursuing righteousness. It was all about external behavior. It was all about do's and don'ts and burdensome lists and trying to be good and impress people. For the Pharisees, that's how they measured righteousness. And over and over again, Jesus says, that's not true righteousness. That's not true righteousness. That, that's not how you experience my kingdom. So how, how do you experience the kingdom? Jesus tells us earlier in the Beatitudes, we've been looking at this for the last several weeks. It's by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. In other words, it's by admitting we aren't righteous in our own power and looking to Jesus to be that for us. When we come to the Bible with a heart that is open and that realizes how desperately we need help, you know what you're going to find? Jesus on every page. 
you're going you're gonna to be reminded of how much Jesus loves you and how his grace is sufficient for you. You're going to be reminded how he can meet you in your deepest need and, and darkest place. You're going to see afresh the Savior who gave his all for you on the cross and who rose from the dead so that nothing will separate you from his love. You're, you're going to see his wisdom and his joy and his peace. And, and you're going to be inspired and empowered to live differently. Friends, don't miss out on the power and the impact that the Bible can have in your life, not as a set of rules to follow, but as a place to, to fall more in love with Jesus. He is the point. The entire Bible points to him. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help you and me see Jesus and be impacted by him in greater ways through his word so that our lives can be built on the strong foundation of him as our rock. Let's pray together. So let's just quiet our hearts wherever you are, wherever you're watching this, let's quiet our hearts. And let's ask, let's ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? to each one of us right now. Just ask the Lord, what is he saying to you in response to this message? Maybe for some of you, Jesus is stirring in your heart a desire to wade more deeply into his word, to be more consistent in your time in his word and in how you approach the word, looking for Jesus, all of that. Maybe he's stirring in your heart that desire, which is awesome. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for those in whom you're stirring this desire to spend more time in your word. I pray that you would help them build this consistently into their lives and that they would be transformed by the Bible, by engaging in the Bible. So Holy Spirit, just help make that happen. There may be others of you, and as you're asking the Lord what he's saying to you, maybe there's an area of your life that in this message, the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on, or maybe even right now, the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on an area of your life right now, an area where you have not been obeying him. You have put yourself as the authority rather than surrendering your heart to Jesus' authority and to what his word says and is saying to you. So as you're in that place, he's pointing this out. Are you willing to say yes to him? or maybe to wrestle with him in this and process this. What's going on in your own heart? Why are you resisting this? But are you willing to go there with him and let him move your heart to say yes, to say yes to obeying him, to obeying his word? Man, I, I just sense in my heart that 
for those of you who are saying yes in an area, man, the Lord is, <laughs> he is right there. He sees you. And he's honored that you would say yes to him in that area, that you would trust him in that area. And so, Lord, I want to pray that in those places of yes, you would be building the foundation of our lives on a rock, even when it means saying no to something we want to do. Maybe it's some sin we've been struggling with, man. Whatever it is you're encouraging us to say yes to, I pray that you would use that to build our lives on a solid rock. That you would use our obedience in such a powerful way that we would be transformed by your word. So we love you, Jesus. We worship you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.